So by the time I got to my HSC in year 12, I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do and I spoke to my careers advisor and he said, what do you like doing? And being the 17 year old that I was in Bondi, I said, I like drinking and I like eating. And he said, have you thought about being a chef? And I said, no. And then I thought that, right, that's it. I'm going to be a chef. And I Googled the best restaurants in Bondi because I had no idea about anything back then. And yeah, I got my first job at um, North Bondi Italian food. So it all started there. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The hospitality industry offers the most extraordinary of experiences that can enrich one's life, but is also renowned for hard work, long hours, unnatural social lives, and extreme deadlines. Is the intense nature of the industry driving many to rethink how they live their lives and how they see their role in the industry. Marinda Boaz Cole has worked in some of Australia's most influential restaurants. She's recently lost her role cooking for the Sydney Swans, packed her bags and moved to Byron. Marinda, how are you going? Hey, good, thank you. How are you going? Good. That's a pretty big life change, moving to Byron, and we can get to that shortly. But you were cooking for the Sydney Swans and um, that all went pear-shaped. Yes, thanks to COVID. Um, it was my first, it was my debut season cooking for the Sydney Swans. Um, the girl who normally did it was actually going back on MasterChef, so I had this opportunity. And, yeah, I got about four months into the season until I got a link to um, the Fox News saying that the season had been tempor- temporarily cancelled. And that was that. I had a fridge full of food. I think I was doing French that week. And, um, yeah, I had a fridge full of food. I had to eat myself, put on a few kilos and... But yeah, it was really great cooking for the Sydney Swans while I did. Um, I'd kind of had a preconception of them, and but they were really lovely and extremely grateful, and they'd come into the kitchen and thanks and wash their plates and, yeah. Tell us a bit about that because cooking in restaurants is a little different to cooking for uh, athletes. What, what was it like preparing meals for athletes at that level? Oh, look, I learned I learned a few things of what not to do. I remember being at home and every week that I'd have a different themed buffet and I decided to do Vietnamese and I remember make, hand making these dumpling, dumplings and thinking, what the fuck was I thinking <laughs> trying to do handmade dumplings for 80, 80 packs on top of everything else? But the kitchen itself, it wasn't really it wasn't really a commercial kitchen, so it was definitely hot. I actually had a thermometer, thermometer in there and it got up to 60 degrees one day. Wow. But so yeah, it was very hot. It was very demanding, but very rewarding. And I got to use my skills in a different way every week. Getting to, I had to work um, with the dietitian and come up with a menu each week or twice a week. Um, but yeah, it was. It was got to be creative and do a lot. But yeah, like I said, eighty people by yourself in a tiny little kitchen. It was definitely hard work. Did it change the way that you cook, given the the market that you're cooking for in that instance? Ah. Uh, Good question. Uh, not really, to be honest. Um, I just had to make sure all my numbers were right and not to have too many leftovers, otherwise it would be me taking it all home. But it was its essentially it's the same concept. It did change a little bit after like when COVID first came in. I think in, in March I had to stop doing a buffet, of course, and had to start doing a la carte in rounds, doing 80 by myself. But it, it's the same kind of concept. It's just the service that was different. You've decided to make the move up north uh, for a different life. What triggered that? 
Oh, uh, look, I'm originally from Byron Bay and I've been wanting to move back ever since I left 20 years ago. And yeah, after the Sydney Swans job um, came to an end, um, I took some time off. I was very fortunate to get JobKeeper, so I had some some time to rethink and structure my life. And coming back to Byron was always what I wanted to do. And I just wanted to slow down a little bit. And, you know, it sounds like the typical hippie, but I want to live off grid and grow my own food. And I joke with my friends about wanting to walk around in the garden naked. I'm not sure if I'll do it, but I'd like to have that <laughs> opportunity where there's no one around me. And yeah, it's, look, it's amazing every week, you know, riding our bikes to the farmer's markets and sometimes canoeing to the markets and driving to the beach and or walking to the beach and there's no one there when you get there. You don't have to find parking and pay for parking and having it to yourself. So, yeah, just really wanting to slow down a little bit and, yeah, breathe. <laughs> you mentioned uh, about growing your own uh, produce. Is that something you're doing at the moment? Uh, I've started to, but I'm I'm trying to find my own property, so I'm not going to invest too much into where I am. But you know, I've got the the basics and herbs and tomatoes. We've got chickens, and but not the big step yet. I'm just trying to find the right place where I can really get my garden happening. Long before uh, the Sydney Swans, you've worked in restaurants and actually you've done many interesting things. Where, where did the interest in food start for you? Um. There's two answers to this. One, when I, I was 13 and my mum was a single mum and one night a week, she's a musician, so she would come home at about seven o'clock for a break and she told me I had to get dinner ready. So she taught me how to make pasta and I'm just talking onion, garlic, tin of tomatoes and a packet of pasta. And after I got used to that, I was 13 by the way, um, and after I learned how to do that, I would start getting a little bit more creative and adding chilli and olives and then proteins and I think from, yeah, from a young age, I'd always loved food. So by the time I got to my HSC in year 12, I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. And I spoke to my careers advisor and he said, what do you like doing? And being the 17 year old that I was in Bondi, I said, I like drinking and I like eating. And he said, have you thought about being a chef? And I said, no. And then I thought that, right, that's it. I'm going to be a chef. And I Googled the best restaurants in Bondi because I had no idea about anything back then. And yeah, I got my first job at, um, North Bonne Italian food. So it all started there. What was it like in that kitchen? Can you take us back? Do you remember your first day and, and what it was like? Yes, I can. I remember coming home after the first day. I think it was a double and thinking, am I really going to do this? Is this really what I want to do? But there's something, there was some excitement that I got from the rush of service that wanted to keep me going back. So, yeah. Early on in your career, uh, you were involved uh, in an accident. Can you can you take us through that and what sort of impact it had on you and your career? Yeah, quite a large one in my life as well. I was working at um, Bist Road at the time with Jeremy and it was actually um, a drink driving incident. It's not something I'm proud of, but I definitely learned a lot from that. So I'm happy to share that. I um, I think my we'd finished a double. It was a Thursday. I was working for Maryvale, so we got cheap booze and I think my blood alcohol was 0.27. Wow. So really, really quite frightening and I, yeah, I had a near-death near experience and I had to, obviously had to take time off work because unlike lots of people, we can't actually work from home. So I think I had nine months off but it, it really just um, taught me not to sweat the small things, you know, if something like, I don't know, you lose your iPhone or something breaks and I just really learned, had a little kind of like an epiphany, if you will, and yeah, just made me 
yeah, t- take take some time to, yeah, think about what had happened and how lucky I was and lucky I didn't hurt anyone else. And, yeah, the physical pain, obviously, with that as well. But I was lucky to utilise the time and I actually went travelling a little bit on crutches and kept cooking. I did a, a private catering job at home on one kind of one crutch in my little kitchen. Wow. Yeah. But that that um, time of the, the drinking culture was unbelievable when, you know, God, how old am I, 13 years ago when I started cooking. I remember on a Friday night, um, halfway through, like after the first sitting, there'd be three chefs in a, in a hatted restaurant and we'd drink a case of beer between us. Like I just, I don't know how I did it and kept cooking. So I was lucky to have escaped that culture eventually. But, yeah, it definitely changed my life for the better. What sort of impact did it have on, on your cooking and career, having something so um, shocking happen early on? Uh, God, it's so long ago. It's hard to hard to say now. I remember being really grateful that to get my job back afterwards, and yeah, I just kept kept cooking at home and and doing what I could. Jeremy made an incredible impact on uh, Australia's culinary landscape, and he's no longer with us. What, what was it like working with him? Uh, it was an amazing experience working with Jez. Um, like most apprentices, I was a bit of a rat bag and didn't know when to keep my mouth shut. So he really made me pull my head in and. He taught me a lot, um, how to work clean, which might not sound important, but it's a very important skill to have as a chef. But I was really lucky the last time I got to see him, actually, I was um, doing a, a charity event called the CEO Cook-Off, and he was one of the celebrity chefs participating. And I was the precinct manager, so part of my one of the roles was to make sure everyone was on time. So I was in his little section telling him to hurry up and having a laugh with him. So... The last time I saw him, yeah, we were having a laugh and the tables had turned and we hugged it out at the end. And I was actually um, in Greece at the time when I found out we'd lost Jez. And it, yeah, it really shook me, really shook me. And I'd also had another physical accident, which I might tell you about afterwards. But yeah, I just went up onto the hills and had took some time thinking about the memories and lit a candle and had a glass of wine and yeah. I think there's so many that um, have such wonderful memories with Jeremy. Uh, you just mentioned briefly that you'd had another accident <laughs> while you were away. Um, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I was um, private chefing for a, a magnate shipping com- family in, in Greece. And I was on the way to the butcher in the morning and I was coming around a corner and my wheel kind of locked up and I rolled off the edge of a maybe four metre drop or something. Wow. And it, at the time, I didn't realise the car had rolled. It was only looking back at the pictures, seeing that there was a dent in the roof and dirt all over it. But I was in shock, so lucky I was only about 500 metres from where I was working at the time from the house. So I kind of walked back in shock, not realising my fractured vertebrae and ribs or anything. It was in shock, so I didn't feel any of the pain and buzzed the buzzer where security was and I had to explain where the, what happened to the car. And luckily, um, they had their own ambulance on site, so... The big Greek mama wanted to come with me um, naturally and because she was a billionaire, we had to have a whole entourage of security and guns. So there's poor little me in this Greek ambulance, yeah, with this whole entourage following me there. Um, but luckily for me, um, I made a full recovery and I was able to recover in Greece in the most amazing place. You know, you had, I had to be a little bit active every day, so I had to get out of the house and go to the beach and and take it easy, yeah. 
tell us a little bit about private chefing uh, in Greece, That's especially being an Australian chef and, and cooking over there. What was the experience like? Oh, it was phenomenal. The produce that we had access to on the actual property, uh, I think there was something like 20 gardeners that would work in any one given day. So we just had an abundance of food. When the fig season started, we had to think of all the things that we could do with them to last for the next year. Um, it was a little bit hard doing some of the ordering and whatnot, um, but luckily a chef that I was with could speak Greek, so that was helpful. Um, but yeah, it was one of, surprisingly, it was one of the easiest jobs I'd had, even though we were working up to 100 hours a week. So yeah, it was an amazing, amazing experience and I'd de- definitely recommend it to anyone who gets the opportunity. What's been some of the major influences on your cooking through your career so far? You've named a couple, and particularly Jeremy. Have there been other moments that have sort of um, changed the way uh, you uh, cook in the kitchen? Uh, absolutely. I'd say Sean's panorama is where I where I learnt the most. He's he's an absolute genius. I remember I went in for dinner before I um, before I'd got the job there, of course, and I remember eating this dish of raw snapper and a fine brunoise of fennel and echelot and finger lime. And back then, this is 13 years ago, back then no one was using finger lime and natives. And I remember having this this bite of food and thinking, oh, my God, I need to work here. This is the best thing I've ever put in my mouth. And I did. I, I snuck off on my break and went for a trial there. Um, they asked me to come back for a second one because I'd, I'd made a salad dressing, I think, from memory, and I'd split it. I didn't even know what emulsifying dressing was because I was a second-year apprentice. But... Luckily for me, I got the job and I was so lucky as a second year apprentice, like sometimes doing the fish section and just the knowledge that Sean shared with me. Um, he's just, his simplicity, his simplicity approach um, to like rustic food, showcasing the ingredients. Yeah, he's, he's just genius and such a kind man to work for. I remember when we got um, our second hat and because it was just a degustation menu, we couldn't run out of any food. So the end would close on a Sunday for two days. So I remember taking home like nine dozen oysters and a huge bag of crabs and just sitting in my room shucking the hundred oysters until my fingers were bleeding. And, yeah, I was lucky because back then as a first-year apprentice, I think I was on $4.56 an hour. So it was a little bit more at Sean's because I was a second year. But having the um, opportunity to play with this amazing produce um, as an apprentice, just at home, inviting friends over was, yeah, you can't put a price on that. One of the things that you've done in your career is um, work with Oz Harvest. Can you tell us um, what led to the decision to, to join Oz Harvest and work with them? Um, yeah, I was actually in New Zealand and I was wanting to take a break from cooking, but it was really hard to get a job that paid anything. So I think a bar manager was on $13.25. So I went, nah, I'm going to keep cooking. And I found a job catering in Queenstown. But I didn't realize that catering could actually be amazing food. It kind of had this bad reputations, you know, at weddings and whatnot. So, you know, making our own bread and curing our own meats. And when I came back to Australia, I thought, I'm doing this again. You know, you, you did work weekends, but you worked day shifts all through the week. So I came back and I got a job um, as head chef of a catering company. And after a while, I just didn't feel the purpose that I wanted to feel. So I got got the courage to quit my job and go out on a whim with nothing nothing in place. And I was just going to try and volunteer somewhere until I found what I wanted to do, having no idea what that was. And 
finally I came across Oz Harvest, which I didn't know much about. I think this is about six years ago. It wasn't as big as it is now. And um, the chef said, okay, you're going to be teaching a cooking lesson. And I was like, what? I've never taught before. But naturally, like as a chef, you know, you teach other people on your section what to do. So it was a little bit instinctive. And I can't remember what I was cooking at the day. And at the end of it, he said, great, do you want a job? And I, I couldn't believe that I could be fortunate to work with surplus food that was then going to be turned into something delicious to go and feed vulnerable people and I got paid. It was like it really, really was my dream job for five years. I had so many phenomenal experiences there and, yeah, it was amazing. Tell us a bit about the process there in the kitchen. I know that Oz Harvest collects unused food and or food that will go to waste, um, but can you tell us what happens in the kitchen and the process and how you come up with the dishes? So a lot of people have a bit of a misconception that there's a team of chefs working away cooking all the food. It's actually only like 10% of the food that gets turned into meals. The rest is sent out as raw ingredients to other charities for them to do um, what they what they will with it. So with the rest of it, we would teach cooking lessons to raise funds to keep doing what we were doing. Um, so we had like a base of recipes, but you'd always use the recipe as a guide because you'd never know what you were going to, what ingredients you were going to get. We would buy some staples like bread and yeast and whatnot. But, um, yeah, just the food that you would get in is not what people imagine. Everyone seems to think it's, you know, rotting vegetables and whatnot. But some of the produce, like apart from the food that would come off MasterChef and My Kitchen Rules and all this abundant seafood, we'd get pallets of, um, Oh, any fruit and vegetable you can think of in perfect condition and things like, I think it was Aldi was a supermarket was shutting down and instead of restocking the food that they used in, in the film commercial or whatever it was that they were doing, they, they get rid of it because everything has codes um, on it. So we'd get like $40,000 of produce of brand new food and that was still, that was going to, yeah, it was destined to go to landfill. You've um, done many things all over the world and had some crazy adventures. How do you approach cooking yourself? How, how would you describe your own uh, cooking? This is a good question and people often ask, what's your favourite thing to cook and what's your favourite thing to eat? Um, I like cooking whatever's around me and whatever's fresh. Um, obviously, things from the garden and fresh ingredients, you just can't compare. Anything with chilli, I love cooking. And I've got a love for cooking on a wood wood fire grill. Um, but I love to cook what other people want to eat. So whenever I go to someone's house for dinner, normally I cook, or if they come to mine, I always ask them what they want to eat. So I love cooking what other people want to eat and what I'd like to eat myself, I guess. You've got a lot of friends in the industry and it's been quite a, a traumatic time um, for many all over the globe in the last year. Um, what's, what's your thoughts about a career as a, as a chef um, now you've sort of moved away from the cities but how are you feeling about that as a career generally and for yourself? Um, oh, look, part of me wants to say don't do it anyone who's thinking about it but the other part is just I can't imagine myself doing anything else it's taken me to so many places and I've had so many amazing experiences from it I think um, COVID, I don't want to talk about COVID, but it's hard not to these days. It's completely changed and shifted so many people and their restaurants and what, what they're doing in the industry and what they need to do. It's really brought chefs together um, and it's shown the community spirit that, that chefs have. Um, and even when, 
you know, they're not doing it. They're doing it a bit tough themselves. They'll still come together and try and raise funds to help other people. There's been so many amazing soup kitchens pop up and helping feed the people that really can't feed themselves in this unprecedented time. You mentioned that you um, cycle and sometimes even canoe to the markets to get produce and you're looking for a property to grow your own um, stuff. Have, what's it been like? You've been up there a couple of months now. Do you feel a noticeable change in yourself being away from the city? Ah, absolutely. I've been struggling with insomnia since I was 15 and I think I've slept every night by one since being here. Wow. I'm not sure what it is exactly, but I don't know, maybe it's in the air. It's just, it's a different, different life, you know, walking down the street or to the beach and people just say hello to you and you say hello to them and you start to get familiar with the locals and they get familiar with you and there's just a whole a whole sense of community that you don't really have as much in the city. Like I was living in Newtown before I came here for three years in the same house and I didn't even know my neighbours. And now living where I am now, I can't not imagine knowing my neighbours and how, how did I live in this city life and not who, know who my neighbours were. Just, yeah, com- completely different from the city. It's much slower pace. I mean, Byron's renowned for having a thing called Byron time. And I'm telling you, it's a thing when you, when you say a certain time, no one's actually there at a the certain time. And when you're waiting for your coffee, I was up in the hills the other day ordering a coffee and there was a line of about 10 people behind me. And the woman serving me honestly took five minutes just talking to me and, you know, asking questions. And I felt guilty answering because of the people behind me, but she did it with the next person and the next person. So it really is just a whole, a whole lot slower in a, in a chilled way, in a good way. You've taken the chance to um, have a circuit breaker and move to Byron and you're talking about uh, getting your own property and growing uh, fruit and veg. What, what is the plan uh, for the future with you? Is, do you still see a career in chefing? Oh, absolutely. I couldn't, couldn't do anything else. Um, I haven't started trying to work yet. I imagine that I'll continue just doing um, private chefing and doing functions here and there. But, yeah, I'd love to be able to, on my own property, do dinners in between orchids with food that I've grown there, of course, sustainably. Um, yeah, I've heard Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio has just moved around the corner, so I might see if he needs a private chef. <laughs> but I'm definitely going to keep on cooking. I wouldn't know what to do with myself if it didn't involve food. Well, Marinda, we've loved uh, hearing your story on Deep in the Weeds and very much look forward to hearing what you do up there. I'm sure it'll be amazing. Oh, thank you so much. Please keep in touch and uh, we'll talk again soon. Will do. See you, Huck. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospital community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.